This morning's scripture reading is taken from Luke 1, verses 14 to 17, and verses 76 to 80, and Luke 3, verses 1 to 20. Luke 1, verses 14 to 17 can be found on page 1587 of the Pew Bible. Luke 1, verse 14. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Luke 1, verse 76 can be found on page 1590 of the Pew Bible. Luke 1, verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to give our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. Luke 3, verse 1, can be found on page 1593. Luke 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetra of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetra of Ituria and Trichonitis, and Licinius Tetra of Abilin, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah in the desert. He went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough way smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. John said to the crowd coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of wipers, who warn you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. 
The axe is already at the roots of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do now? The crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics shall share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, What shall we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, And what should we do? He replied, Don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up all the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John assorted the people and preached the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for your word read to us. We pray now that you would minister to our hearts with those words read and with what is going to be preached. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, Queen Elizabeth II turned 90 years of age. Many of us may have read articles and uh, seen videos and looked at photos about her and the royal family. The media, especially in England, had all these articles about her, the videos, photos, and so on, on their news sites and on, in magazines and such. Gordon Rayner, chief reporter with The Telegraph, wrote one of the articles which was entitled, On the Road with the Queen. What I learned from 20 royal tours. When the Queen goes traveling, uh, the press, they're invited to go along with her and do the reporting and get briefed and all that kind of thing. And so Gordon Rayner writes of all those preparations that are carried out for the visit uh, that the Queen makes to the different countries of the world. He had done about 20 of these tours, and he says her entourage is large, not just one maid and or a chauffeur 
and one or two bodyguards, but it can run to about 34 persons. That's a whole host of people to look after her welfare and safety, and it includes uh, two secretaries, one for her, one for the Duke of Edinburgh, and assistant secretaries, I guess, just in case the secretaries forget stuff. Ladies-in-waiting, secretaries are not ladies-in-waiting. Bodyguards, uh, security detail and all that kind of thing. And the barang-barang, he lists some of the things that they bring and that barang-barang, you can't classify it as tra travelling light, never at all. And what does it include? In case the food is not up to par, it includes nourishing British foodstuffs and bottled water. In case the water is also not, uh, you can't take the water, not portable. They also carry personal packs of blood if that country has a reputation for not being reliable uh, in having blood supply where it's questionable. And her itinerary, he writes, to the moment she sits down or gets into the car or enters the door is choreographed to the minute. Everything is planned in minute detail. And this is all done like months and weeks beforehand. A, a group of her people would actually fly into the country to check things out. And um, she's... He also writes, the press were told the Queen never reveals her favourite food because she would be served nothing else wherever she goes if people knew that. That's how the world's royalty travels. Even those that are not as big as Queen Elizabeth would have their entourage and their preparation months before travelling. Announcements will be made especially uh, on official visits and so on, celebrated with pomp and ceremony and all that kind of thing. But when we consider how the King of Kings came to be with us, he came so quietly that almost no one knew. Almost. There was no announcement of his coming except late at night to some shepherds who were watching their sheep. People of no consequence. Some other, a handful of other people kind of knew. Astrologers from the East, not even Jewish people, not even people who worship Yahweh, but Zoroastrians, uh, a Persian religion. But part of their religion was the study of stars. And so the stars, in that sense, God, God made the stars announce the coming to them. But this was just a small group of people, people who perhaps in our minds were of no consequence. And then when Jesus began his public ministry, he had no itinerary planned except that he would go where the Holy Spirit would lead him. Of course, the Holy Spirit had things down exactly what was required, to what was required. But for Jesus, as he, he, 
simply went along with the Holy Spirit. There were no logistic blueprints as such. And the only herald or the only announcer that was there was just one person sent to prepare the way, John the Baptist. But we must not think that God does not prepare His people. God, in fact, spent centuries preparing His people for the coming of His anointed King. And God began those preparations, really, right from the time when Adam and Eve disobeyed and were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. God took that long to prepare His people. And if we read the Old Testament right through, we're going to see that in all of God's dealings with His people, they pointed to this King who would come, to this Messiah who would come. Very briefly, the whole sweep of the Old Testament. God began again after Noah and after the Tower of Babel and people continued sinning. God began again with Abraham. God introduced himself to Abraham as it were. I am God Almighty. Worship me, come along with me and invited him to go on an adventure. And from Abraham... Uh, God met with Isaac, God met personally with Jacob and established a relationship with this family through which he says all other people on earth will be blessed. And so uh, that was step one to the announcement that everybody in the world will be blessed through this one family. He didn't quite reveal yet what this blessing was. And then, as time went on, the people came down to Egypt, grew in number, and were enslaved, and God freed them. And that pointed to another freedom that would come centuries later. Freedom from slavery, physical slavery in Egypt, pointing to the slavery of all humankind to sin. And when God had freed his people from Egypt, he took them to this place, met with them, gave them the law which would help them to know God's ways of holiness. What were the right ways to live? See, God made us to live in a certain way. And if we go astray from those ways... And that's plenty of freedom within God's ways, really. But if we went out of those ways, we bring destruction to ourselves. And so God gave the law to put not just boundaries, but help people to see the freedom with which they could live in His ways. And after that wandering in the desert, they moved into the promised land. And the judges came to lead, were raised to lead Israel, gave them God's word, spoke to them personally like Samuel did. This was the time that the people learned that God will protect them when they live in His ways. 
But when they did not, they opened themselves up to hostile neighbours who overran them, who conquered them. But again and again, when they cried to God, God would be the one to come rescue them from the oppression by their hostile neighbours. But they got tired of that. They got tired of God, unfortunately. And so they wanted a king. They looked around. It's like children sometimes. When they look and see their friend seems to have a better toy, they want that. And so the Israelites looked at their neighbours and saw that they had kings and said, we want a king as well. God in his grace allowed that and used the monarchy, the kingship, to help the people understand that God was really their king. The kings were called to mirror God's gracious rule. David did that, not perfectly, but he was, in a sense, the human standard against which all other kings were measured. Some lived up to that, others, and many of them, did not. And so the prophets were sent to speak God's word and to call people back to God's ways, to holiness, to God himself. Not just that, but these prophets were also to call to account the kings who disobeyed God. Someone posted something that says, what does it mean to speak truth to power? And that's what the prophets were doing. In each of these eras or time, if the people had been obedient and attentive to God, and there were those who were like that, they would see and catch more and more of God's heart for them and for the people of the world. The prophets did, but others did not. When we come to Luke, when we come to the New Testament and look at Luke, although Luke was not a Jew, he was very careful to study the history of Israel. And you'll find in the first two chapters a lot of reference. In fact, it's almost like a continuation of the Old Testament where he talks about, he writes about Zechariah and Elizabeth living in righteousness, where he talks about performing the different rituals in holiness, in worship. Uh, Zechariah doing his duties as a priest and being a priest that goes right back to Moses' time, to Aaron, because Zechariah was a descendant of Aaron, as was Elizabeth. And so you have echoes of the Old Testament there. And when Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus to the temple to be redeemed and presented to God and so on, that was also a ritual that God has established way back with Moses and the Israelites. Elizabeth, this is not something positive. Elizabeth was barren, but she followed in a long line of her ancestors 
who found themselves in the same situation, but whom God had blessed, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, Jacob's wife, and Hannah, Samuel's mother, and even Samson's mother. They were barren, but God did a miracle in their lives and gave them children or one child for some of them. And so you find that God in His grace over time worked to prepare His people and in each uh, engagement with God, so to speak, the people came to hear about this Messiah who would, be, who would come or even the servant of the Lord, which is one of the phrases or one of the titles that Isaiah uses for this person who would come and who would rescue God's people. And so when Zechariah sang that song about how God has looked upon him and how God has blessed them and how his son, John, would be the one who would go before the Lord Jesus. Almost all of his songs contain phrases from the prophets or from the Old Testament. And in the portion that was read to us, there are at least five references or five or six references to the prophet Isaiah and some to Malachi. Like, the rising sun will come to us from heaven. It reminds us of the song Hark the Herald Angels Sing where there's a line that speaks of the son of righteousness. And that is taken from Malachi. In chapter 3, we will see later that John is to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. And this was what Elijah or the second Elijah who comes is supposed to do. That's what Malachi says. And then you have all those other references, prepare the way, giving light, being a light, the tender mercies of God. All these are taken really from the prophets. And so people like Zechariah were so well-versed with what God had said that this was part of not just something they had memorized, but it is who they were. This people of God who was looking expectantly for this Messiah, this servant of God who was to come to them. And we find in John chapter 3, even as Zechariah has said this over his child, that indeed John was the one who would come to prepare the way, who would go before this royal person to announce his coming. We call John, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. John the Baptist sounds like he belongs to a denomination, but that's not true. John himself, really, from the beginning, had been prepared by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the angel Gabriel, if you remember, when he met, uh, as it was read to us just now, when he 
met Zechariah in the temple one-on-one, -on -one, he told him that John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And the angel Gabriel was the one who referred to Malachi, who said that uh, John would be the one to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and likewise the children to their fathers. And John, having been prepared by the Holy Spirit, he in turn prepared the people for the coming of the Messiah, the one who would, he says, baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This Messiah, this who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, would bring in the kingdom of God. And how were the people supposed to prepare for it? They were to repent. In the Old Testament, the word, the Hebrew word suv, as you be, as you be, they use the same letter for those two, is the word used for repent. And what it means is to turn, to turn away from that direction that leads away from God and to turn into the direction that would lead them back to God. And the thing is, if we look very carefully, the people who went to John was not just the pagans. And so the call to repent was not just to non-Jews. It was to the Jewish people themselves as well. The thing is, being baptised was alien to the Jews. They don't do that. It was only pagans who, if they wanted to believe in Yahweh, would undergo baptism. But John is saying to them, don't even think you don't need this. Even if you are children of Abraham, you still have to repent. And that's because lineage or ancestry does not get you saved. Just because you are descended from Abraham does not mean that you are saved, that you will be included in the kingdom of God. A personal relationship with God and doing God's will is what brings you into the kingdom. And that U-turn you're making, that's what repentance means, making a U-turn to go back to God. It's not just agreeing that it's a good thing, sitting back and uh, dusting your hands and said, that's it, I agree, finish. That's just agreeing up here in the mind. Intellectual assent, it's called. True repentance has to show that lives are changed. True repentance results in doing the things that are right and just, God's ways. And the action and behaviour that comes with repentance are concrete. They are tangible. And so God gives, uh, rather John gives them very concrete instructions about what to do when they say, when they ask him. The crowd asks, 
What are we to do? The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Very tangible thing to be done. Tax collectors, don't collect more than what you're due. You can actually count what you need to collect. Uh, soldiers, don't extort money. Don't accuse people fully. Not everyone could hear or accept or respond positively to this call, calls like these. John, in the footsteps of the prophets that went before him, spoke truth to power. And in his rebuke of Herod, he got thrown into prison. And if we read into the Gospels, many of us would know that story. He ended up losing his head for that. The message of repentance holds true for us today as well. You and I make choices at times that take us away from God. You and I make choices sometimes that are not suitable for us to make as children of God. Things like when we make judgments about people offhand, judging a book by its cover instead of engaging with the people, reacting in ways that are disproportionate to the trigger, for example, getting into a rage, road rage, when a car cuts in front of us, harboring ill feelings against someone rather than engaging them and talking things through, listening to other people and what they say about someone else instead of finding out the truth for ourselves, and so on. And we need to repent because these things take us away from God. We need to make that U-turn and we need to come to God and ask for forgiveness. That's a movement today that people call hyper-grace. And in that movement, the teaching is that we're all sinners, yes, but Christ's blood has covered our sins, so there's no need to repent and be transformed to do good works. Yeah, we do good works, but doesn't really matter because Jesus' blood covers our sins. It's not that they advocate that those who are saved don't need to do good works, but a change in life is not essential because Jesus' blood covers. God's grace has it covered. But the truth is that repentance is needed and transformation is what God calls us to. Paul puts it very clearly in Romans chapter 12. The whole chapter, in fact. After telling the people to be transformed by the renewal of the mind, Paul then goes on to write very concrete things that need to be done as a result of that transformation. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. 
Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. These are just some of the things that Paul says. All this comes from a life that is being transformed and Holy Spirit enabled as we cooperate with God to bring about this transformation. On our own, it will not happen or even if we do such things, it will be for the short term. But with the Holy Spirit, the change goes right to our very core. And this is where what we call spiritual exercises come in. They train us in godliness to be able to do all these things. When the time comes, we will not be able to bless someone who persecutes us if we do not practice blessing people, praying for people. Football teams practice hard, right? They, they do practice, otherwise they won't be able to play on the football field. And they need to practice in all sorts of conditions so that they will be able to play. Given our weather, you never know, in the middle of the match, rain comes. How do they play? A football team that refuses to practice when it rains or on a wet pitch will never be able to play if on game day, halfway through the match, it rains. They'll be all over the place. They would not know how to handle the ball because a wet ball is a very different thing from one that is dry. It's only when they have practiced playing on a wet and slippery pitch that they will be able to play decently, if not play well, when it rains. In that similar way, when we practice exercises of upward relating to God, inward relating to ourselves, and outward relating to others, these kind of disciplines, when we practice them over and over again, it's only then that we will be able to act and, responds, and respond when the situation calls for it. And so, like I was saying, if someone persecutes you, and God says, bless, not curse them. It's really hard if we have not been praying for people who don't like us, for people who seem to have set themselves over against us for some reason, and so on. Spiritual exercises put us in that place where God can bring about the transformation that is needed in our lives to make us more like Jesus in our character. 
it's kind of like when you knead dough, right? It gets the air in and it makes good bread. But if we don't knead it, the air cannot get into the bread. Yeah? If we don't work the dough, uh, the air cannot get in. In the same way, when we don't work at our souls or at least practice those exercises that put us in that place where the breath of God, the air, the Spirit of God can get at us, transformation doesn't take place. The Holy Spirit helps us to practice these exercises and then He Himself brings about that needed transformation. And when we do that, and when we are transformed, and as we are being transformed, because this transformation will never finish this side of heaven, we will find people asking us about the change in our lives, if that change is obvious enough. And that was what happened to author and apologist Lee Strobel. He was an investigative reporter, a lawyer, qualified lawyer, with the Chicago Tribune. Very hard-headed, an atheist, and very set in his ways. But his wife came to know Christ and her life changed, and he saw that change for himself. And so he began to investigate for himself. Being an investigative reporter, he did what he would normally do if he wanted to find out something, if something was true. He went on an investigation trail, and you can read his story in The Case for Christ. That is a book he has written of his search. But it was all started by the change he noticed in his wife's life. And when people begin to ask us about why we live the way we do and why our lives have changed, that is where God has put us to prepare people like John did for Jesus to come into their lives. Jesus not only proclaimed the kingdom himself, he sent his disciples to proclaim the kingdom as well. When he was with them, the 12 of them, and then later 70 of them, but he commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses, to prepare the way, witnessing and telling what God did for us. That's what witnessing is. It's not about convincing people. It's not about convicting their hearts. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to be witnesses. And you know what witnesses do on the witness stand? They tell the truth. They tell the truth about what they've experienced. They tell the truth about what they've seen. And that is what Jesus is telling us or calling us to do, to be witnesses. And that's what it, it is, being part and parcel of a disciple. And so we are called as well to prepare people's hearts for Jesus to enter. And maybe right now there is someone in your mind whom you think needs that needs hearing about Jesus. Then I'm going to ask us to take time now to pray. First of all, to ask God to help us live so that our lives show God's presence 
and also to ask God to show us if there is something we need to do for that to happen, for His presence to show through in our lives. Secondly, ask God to show someone whose heart needs you to prepare the way for Jesus to enter if you don't have someone to, on, in your mind at the moment. And thirdly, then we ask God to guide us in doing that. And the Holy Spirit will. It may not happen immediately after church. It may not happen tomorrow. But we pray this so that when the time comes, we will be prepared. Let us pray. So I want to invite us to take this time to pray. Those three things. Uh, Claudia, can we have that last slide again? Please, yeah. All right, to take some time to pray, yeah.